Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killup, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Avi. I'm doing great. I have a pre-question for you before we get started. Okay. Just in general, in your prayer life, how, how do you feel about instruments? Like musical instruments? Yeah, like musical instruments in, in your experience of davening, but also maybe more broadly spirituality? Like Yeah. I mean, music in general is like very important to me and feels like it plays a critical role. Musical instruments, you know, I don't know, when I'm like home on a Rosh Chodesh or Hanukkah morning, I will sometimes like pull out my guitar and like have like Hallel with my kids in a way that feels like it convenes people around something, right? There's something about the musical instrument that like draws people's attention in. So yeah, sometimes I find that can augment. How about you? Yeah, I'm jeal- I'm so jealous that you can play guitar. It's a life goal of mine that I've never uh, even begun to uh, work on. But as long as you don't want to play it that well, it's not that hard. Yeah, I got to do it. We don't we don't own a guitar, but we do own a ukulele now. Actually, wow, that sounds like it could be either beautiful or annoying. You know, my ten year old is really the one who is learning to play, and it, it's actually pretty beautiful. Amazing. It's a nice uh, 10-year-old size instrument, maybe. Maybe someday he'll graduate. I failed as a parent making my kids learn musical instruments. That's one of my one of my deep regrets. Uh, they have time. Meaning if I have time, they have time. Yeah, fair But enough. I will say that for me, um, I do find music and, you know, sitting at a concert, you know, so many so many people will describe sitting at a concert as a spiritual experience or a place where they like they get into a flow where they can connect to something um and i am one of those people i do really experience that even even uh the you know the kind that comes through my headphones turned up way high Mm and sometimes i can get myself to a different place yeah life is more meaningful with a soundtrack i would say in general Mm, i like that and i i feel that um so this particular question that we're going to ask today is specifically going to be about instruments and instruments in shul and instruments in shul on Shabbat. I thought that might be where you were going. So here's what the questioner writes. There's a new minion in my area that just formed that I'd like to explore, but I've been told that they use instruments on Shabbat. So my question is, is it permitted to play instruments on Shabbat? So we have like a number of different layers to this question. It sounds like, can this person sort of check out this minion? Maybe could this be their home minion? Also, you know, obviously this is instruments, it sounds like, not only on Shabbat, but actually during the tefillah on Shabbat. Um, So all sorts of different aspects of this question that we could unpack and explore. And I imagine this is a question that probably touches a lot of our listeners. It may come up for a lot of people, you know. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And this feels like the kind of question where we probably have to build a little bit of like background vocabulary and framework, and then maybe we can explore some different test cases of how it would play out. You know, I I think you have to begin with a question like this by just going back to the Torah, where it's very clear from uh, Bemidbar Numbers chapter 10 
um, that musical instruments were played in the temple on special days like Yom Tov and the various holidays. I mean, it just says straight up, You got to blow trumpets, right, on these special days. Um, and that gives us, uh, you know, a model and a question, what was happening there and how much does that, you know, extrapolate out to other Cases, places, times. It's great. I feel like when I hear the questioner's question, my brain doesn't immediately go to trumpets. As the horn section is probably the uh, instruments there. So I'll be curious to hear, you know, different different vibes of different instruments and whether they have different sort of implications as Yeah, we go. and if you think about it, we take it for granted. But of course, like the Torah commands us, and we still do it today, to play a very loud musical instrument on the Yom Tov of Rosh Hashanah, right? right. Of course, we blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. For observant Jews, that is kind of weird. Uh, we'll try to reconstruct uh, a little bit, but it's like that's something in general. Have an instinct, even if people don't know where it comes from. Of, but normally you can't do that. And even you know, in terms of conventional halacha, even on Rosh Hashanah, there emerges a notion of you blow the shofar. You can blow it as many times as you need to fulfill people's obligations. But once that's done. That thing goes back on a shelf, and you don't just play with it the rest of the day making those noises that are otherwise, and we'll have to tell the story of why, not something you do on Yom Tov. Right. It's not an aesthetic instrument playing. It's a chiyuv, an obligation that we are fulfilling. Yeah, exactly. So there is this biblical background, you know, another place that people might uh, kind of remember in the psalm for Shabbat. Mizmor Shir Yom Shabbat. It talks about all of these stringed instruments, which seem like if it's a psalm for Shabbat, <laughs> are accompanying uh, the psalm for Shabbat. Um, that's the background of, let's put it this way, if you just read the Bible, you would never get a sense that there was any problem with the use of musical instruments on Shabbat and Yom Tov, and you'd actually have evidence suggesting Maybe it's like a neutral to good thing, right, to have them to beautify the day. By the time you get to rabbinic sources, it's super interesting. Rabbinic sources don't have like a specific source that says thou must not play musical instruments on sacred days, but it is a prohibition that is assumed throughout the entire literature hmm. and seems to be on the receiving end of a whole process that plays out in Bait Sheni in the Second Temple period, you find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other areas. There's a kind of withdrawal from the use of tools on Shabbat. Um, what we later use the language of muktza to describe. Yeah. Uh, but this idea of Shabbat's not a day where you're using things that like uh, are the craft of human civilization and shaping the world. And a broad allergy to that seems to catch up in its dragnet uh, the tools that are musical instruments. And so throughout early rabbinic literature, it's just clear you can't move a shofar on Shabbat. Well, why not? Because it's a forbidden tool. Mm -hmm. Or even in places where they describe things that would happen in the temple, they will say that those are things that are overriding Shabbat and Yom Tov. Like the same way it's forbidden to slaughter an animal, 
But the Torah says you have to slaughter a sacrifice on Shabbat. It's always been confusing. Totally, right? <laughs> but that's an exception. The idea is that's something needed in the holiest place on earth in order to maintain the relationship with God, but as a secular activity would be totally forbidden. So the place where this comes up is the Mishnah talks about there being a flute actually a particularly loud flute that they claim you could hear all the way down in Yericho, down in the, uh, in the valley to the east of Jerusalem from the Temple Mount. Um, they say they played the flute on special days in the temple, but it was doche yom tov. Like, just like saving a life, pikuach nefesh, is doche Shabbat, it overrides Shabbat, it's like, it's normally forbidden for me to make a fire. But if I need to make a fire to warm someone up who might die, I override Shabbat. Similarly, the temple service overrides the normal prohibition on playing a flute. So like what we were saying about the shofar on Rosh Hashanah as fulfilling a particular role, it's not like fiddling around with your fiddle. Exactly. <laughs> um, this is... This is the same. You're not playing this instrument just in a haphazard way or casually or for enjoyment. You're doing it really, really intentionally. Exactly. And what you might have seen as a paradigm or a model for the propriety of playing musical instruments on Shabbat and Yom Tov in the Tanakh becomes an exception, something that's unusual, something that deviates from the norm because of some higher purpose. The question then is, against that background now of, you can't play a flute, let's say, <laughs> or you can't play a shofar unless it's been sort of commanded, how do we understand what the problem is there? And because it's not overly explicated in rabbinic sources, um, you get, I'm sorry to say, at least four ways of understanding what's going on. Only four? Right, only four. We should be grateful. <laughs> Not nine? Twelve? <laughs> um, so I, maybe what makes sense is to just like very briefly describe each of those four, and then we can kind of play it out with different examples and get back to the questioners. Great. First model of thinking about the problem is it's about avoiding loud noise. It's actually not about instruments at all. Mm -hmm. The flute is heard down in Jericho. Uh, the shofar, we know, is super loud. There is a whole view upheld by Rabbeinu Hananel, who's writing in 10th century North Africa, in his commentary on the Gemara, that this is the problem. So it's not about musical instruments at all. It's about loud things, which could be certain kinds of uh, you know, wind instrument uh, things that are very loud, high decibel level, but it can also be like banging crazily on a table, right? Yeah. Or rapping loudly on a door. And the students of the Ramban translated this into a practice, which was controversial, get to. They played soft string instruments on Shabbat, even though they never would have picked up a drum, the drum is loud, string instrument is soft, the issue is volume, that's one model. It's like you can use your guitar, but don't plug it into the amp. Exactly. Electric guitar forbidden, acoustic not, right? Even without getting to the electricity questions. Exactly right. Second model is actually the idea that music and rhythmic noise is somehow the problem. So 
the idea that what I care about is not the volume, but the ways in which something is actually creating music as opposed to white noise. So under this model, I can bang on a door um, just to sort of get someone's attention. But if I start rhythmically tapping on that door or doing, you know, tabletop drumming in a way that's going to create a certain kind of environment, maybe lead to other interventions, that's the problem. And then even quiet musical instruments are a problem because they generate music on Shabbat. And that's what gets codified in the Shulchan Aruch as one main approach. Okay, I missed a step a little bit about how don't we do a lot of singing on Shabbat? Is is singing fundamentally? Like I feel like my my Shabbos is full of music, even without instruments. So great question. What's so, the distinction? Great question, and this on some level leads to you're already picking apart. Whenever there's four models, right? Each of them have weaknesses. The weakness here is that the human voice was never forbidden. You know, it's understood through fairly late sources until people start problematizing it, like it's permitted to whistle on Shabbat, right? And as you say, to sing with your voice, etc. So it seems even in this model, there's some notion of, yeah, but you're like doing something with something else in some way, mm -hmm. like a tool, this or that. But the language of this is focused on, yeah, using something else or somehow interacting with an object or with something outside of your voice, that is creating this. But it's not just outside your body, because one of the things the Talmud talks about, which helps build some of these models, will be like, you know, can you rhythmically kind of smack your thigh? Mm -hmm. Which is one of the things that, in some sources, is said to be forbidden. Okay, like the Mishnah says, seems like you can't like rhythmically dance around on Shabbat or other things of this nature. Well, for so some people, that would be impossible. impossible you know, there are right? people who they don't even know they're doing it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you can already feel as we're playing out these models, like you can start to see who holds that, right? Who doesn't, et cetera. But, but that second model is kol shil shir is the problem. First model, volume. Second one, musical rhythmic noise. Third one, maybe more familiar to some of our listeners, is uh, the notion that, well, there's nothing really wrong with playing a musical instrument, but the concern is if you start playing musical instruments, you may end up making or fixing musical instruments. Right. It's a derivative concern. What we're really concerned about is shema yitaken klishir, you will engage in a melacha a creative action um, of an actual core violation of Shabbat, of making or fixing something. But truth be told, the playing itself is only forbidden by rabbinic decree on a secondary level. This is the view expressed by the Stama Talmud, the anonymous voice of the Talmud, in Tractate Beitzah when talking about this, um, that the problem with generating these different noises on Shabbat is lest you come to fix a musical instrument. This whole genre of like lest you come to fix it, it feels so a little absurd or a little silly until you find yourself in one of those moments, you know, and when you do, you're like, oh, this is what that was about. You know, it's the stroller or the bicycle or the instrument. Um, and you find yourself going to fix something and you realize, oh, no, that's that's legitimate. <laughs> that really actually could happen. Yeah. And truth be told, you know, one of the things that's most interesting about this is however much you think it is plausible in a given 
case or not to be worried about that. Once your discourse is, oh, lest this become a problem, you of course almost immediately are then drawn to say, oh, well, in this circumstance, it's not a problem. Therefore, the prohibition doesn't apply. Like the Tosvot already do this. They're noting that people in their time are banging on tables and dancing around and doing all these things that the Talmud forbids. They assume it's not an issue of noise. So they say, well, the problem is lest you make a musical instrument, it must be okay for us to do this because we don't know how to make musical instruments. <laughs> we are not craftsmen, basically, with that skill. Um, and it's then, like if my guitar string breaks, I won't restring it because I don't know how. I don't know how, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I've heard people try to make that argument. They'll be like, well, I won't play a guitar, but I would consider playing a piano. I don't know how to fix that. I need to call in a specialist. Or the Ravya, who is a 12th to 13th century German rabbi, uses this basis to say, oh, so you can ask a non-Jewish band to play at a wedding reception that goes into Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Why? If the only problem with music is lest you come to fix something, well, the non-Jewish musician isn't under a ban on fixing something, so he can play even as your direct agent. And that actually comes accepted as a uh, ruling in the Shulchan Aruch. You huh. can have the wedding on Friday, hire the non-Jewish band, and have it basically go into the evening. So this opinion actually assumes that the other things are not a problem? Like, is this a, That's is this right. a multiple choice test, or is there an all of the above? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure there is an all of the above in terms of some of the positions I'm highlighting here. But for us, there might be an all of the above. For the response of radio listener at the end of this. I see. Hopefully you'll have some sense of there's multiple inputs here. But for sure, the Tosafot are not concerned about noise, and they're not concerned about a first-order concern of making music. Okay, great. I think we're up to three, so maybe we have one more to come. So here's the last one, which goes back in some ways to echoes of some of the trends I talked about in the Second Temple period. Here's where it comes up. You have a source that a lot of people have a hard time understanding uh, that comes up in the Middle Ages, where uh, the Maharil, who is a 15th century, late medieval German authority, says, um, you're allowed to knock on a door, but you're not allowed to use the door knocker. Mm -hmm. There's an actual knocker on the door. You can't use that attachment, but you can knock with your fist on the door. It's funny because I would probably avoid the doorbell and use the door knocker. <laughs> right? Okay. So the Rav Yosef Karo, when he comes across this source, says, I don't know what this is talking about. Either you have a problem with noise, in which case you shouldn't be knocking on the door at all, or you don't, in which case, who cares if you use the knocker? And what I think he's reflecting there is his assumption of, right, the only options are noise or lest you fix something, and none of those seem to apply. But the Maharil seems to be preserving a practice, um, which I think has a lot of deep intuition here, which is the problem is the door knocker is a tool, Yeah. right? In other words, the thing that feels different is my hand on a slab of wood, if I don't have the noise concern, it's just whatever. Second I start swinging that tool up, I'm back in the world of tools generating noise, and it does seem that there is a whole frame of Jewish thinking around this, almost more on like the intuitive level, of the problem with musical instruments 
is that they are tools that we have never really authorized for Shabbat use in the way we did forks. Is the tool problem an aspect of don't change the world too much on Shabbat? Is it like, well, if I make music with a tool, the world is somehow different? That's how I think of it. But I'll add another level to what you just said. I think the concern is not just this action is changing the world. It's almost the idea that like tools change the world. And we stay away from the category of tools unless we've decided, okay, cutlery, that's going to come in. We're going to allow that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it, like another thing that's sort of like a tool that we have a total allergic reaction to is money, right? Like why shouldn't money be something that, eh, you move around money that, you know, if, if we find like a plug on a shelf and it's in our way. The laws of Shabbat tell us, okay, you pick it up and you move it somewhere else because you need the place. But the general approach with money is you cannot pick up the coin and move it. You'd have to brush it off or something like that. And I think there's a notion of, against the backdrop of, we're not allowing like tools and human crafted things in by default. We admit things. Over time, we have admitted many things. I think this reflects an instinct that Musical instruments were just never allowed in, as it were. And yeah, they're in the temple when they have some specific function or when the Torah commands them. But otherwise, keep those at bay. You know, there's something about this last frame that actually I feel like probably the people that this would be most intuitive to are also the people who most want instruments on Shabbat. Because if, you know, the reason to play instruments during a service on Shabbat is because you believe this is a tool that will transform what the service is, right? If it didn't, right. if you didn't think it mattered that much, okay, so I'll sing, or I'll or I'll play the guitar, you know, I'll bang on the table, or I'll bang on a drum. You know, you only brought the instrument because you actually believe it's fundamentally going to allow you to reach a different place, to do a different thing, um, as opposed to like, okay, so it's not such a big deal. I'll hum a little tune. I'll strum a little tune. Um, you know, the less the less distinction you think there is, the less you probably feel called to bring the instrument to shul in the first place. That's right. I mean, going back to the Rav Yaz case, why are people hiring a band, right? Like, why do people hire a band for events? Because actually, it completely transforms the environment. bands are awesome. <laughs> exactly. And it's like... Kind of lame when you don't have that music, right? Yeah. Um, so there is there is that desire. And maybe that's exactly the point of this perspective is, yeah, that's the kind of thing you actually don't do on Shabbat. It also helps, I think, answer some of the puzzles you might have before. So according to this model, it's obvious why you can sing and whistle because you're not using a tool, right? even though it's generating as much, like even like a, a, a acapella concert, like a hundred person choir, right? Which is actually totally overwhelming in terms of shaping things, but it's and not loud, using a tool. <laughs> exactly right. It's loud also, but it's not using a tool. Um, so, you know, you sort of start to compare and contrast or the question of why are there so many observant people who have an instinct of, I have no problem banging even super loudly on a table, but I would never pick up a drum, which on some level almost sounds the same or can sound very similar, but the drum is a tool in a way that the table is not being used as a tool. It's just Well, it wasn't made for that anyway. Exactly. Let's take a break here. 
We'll be right back with more Responsa Radio. But first, I wanted to tell you about the other podcast that I host. It's called Tashma, where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. Hadar faculty teach rich and engaging Torah all the time, but we can't be everywhere at once. So Tashma curates the best recordings so you can listen on your schedule. Find Tashma wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's dive back in. We have four models. Yeah. Let's see if I can do it. Model number one <laughs> was don't be too loud. Right. That might be, it might be a prohibition because it's too loud. Model number two was that you don't make a tune or a melody or something yeah. something about the song that's actually. Yeah, the rhythm itself. The rhythm. Model number three is lest I come to fix it. Right. This instrument might break and I might have to fix it. And model number four is actually just in general about thinking of an instrument as a tool. And we don't use tools on Shabbat. And that's the problem. Yeah, that's it. And then I think maybe now we can play out. So started to explore this a little, but what are the ways the different models might get you to different answers in different circumstances? Yeah. Okay. So here's a circumstance that I, I want to ask about. I'm curious to think about, I sort of started here, but I'll come back to it. The difference between instruments that I'm using on Shabbat for tefillah and instruments that I'm using on Shabbat just to hang out or, or you know, just to practice or, or some other more casual reason. Do the, does that filter through these four reasons differently? I mean, I imagine like fixing would be the same. Probably loud noises would be the same. Um, I wonder about the, the frame that you started with of, you know, maybe you can have exceptions when it's for a purpose. Yeah, so I would actually say overall, these four frames, and part of what I think you find when you look at halachic literature about this is being in davening or not in davening does not affect the Shabbat angle of concern here, right? Meaning the Shabbat angle of concern is about generation of noise, the use of tools, the fear of what it will lead you to, the manipulation of the environment, etc. And that applies anywhere, Nonetheless, there are two other dimensions here that I think become really relevant when you're thinking about prayer. And what's interesting is prayer uh, actually can split in two totally opposite directions. So on the one hand, there is a resistance a little bit beyond the scope of what we've been talking about here um, in certain corners to having musical instruments ever accompany prayer— Mm-hmm. Even during the week, zecher lemikdash. If there is a memory of a temple where there were instruments, and that has been taken away from us, it is inappropriate for us to use instruments in worship before that temple has been rebuilt and that has been restored. Again, that's not a universally held position, but I think we have to remember there there are some views that felt that you should never play a musical instrument at all when the temple is destroyed as a sign of mourning. And even when that, you know, sort of falls by the wayside or gets weakened in certain quarters, uh, there is a notion of like, but don't pretend that your Beit Knesset, your, you know, synagogue space is actually like a temple. Yeah, there's something intuitive to me about that and powerful, right? It's also during the Omer, you know, different times that we might limit ourselves from instruments because we want to mark that we are 
in mourning in some way, that sounds like a sacrifice that's meaningful Mm -hmm. um, and could add meaning um, to our lives. Um, It makes me wonder, right, is there a counter influence of Oneg Shabbat, of joy on Shabbat to say, well, if if not using instruments is a way to be depressed, is using instruments a way to be joyful? Exactly. So some of the ways, some of the early modern European reformers who are looking, among other things, for ways to make the synagogue more attractive, be able to compete with the churches in an age of emancipation and potential assimilation. Um, and Nothing like what we think about today. <laughs> Um, you've got, you know, they're, they're looking at the Ravya, the Ravya who permits hiring a non-Jewish band mm-hmm. for a wedding on Shabbat, right? A wedding that starts on Friday and the party goes into Shabbat. And they say, how could it be that you're allowed to ask a non-Jewish musician to play at a wedding and you couldn't ask a non-Jewish musician to play in a synagogue in order to elevate your worship of God, Okay. And they'll say, isn't that a dvar mitzvah, right? Isn't that some sort of prescriptively positive uh, environment where we want to enable that to happen? And indeed, the early, uh, some of the early reform temples had hired non-Jewish musicians, like in keeping with this frame, uh, to enable that to happen. Right. I think that certainly is something that could happen today, and and I think does. <laughs> for sure. So I think, right, part of what happens for synagogues that use musical instruments today on Shabbat and who are in any way thinking about some kind of framework of halacha, wherever that Venn diagram sits, um, you have some, you have a few uh, places that I think still have some notion of, oh, it should be a non-Jewish musician, etc. More, I think, is my sense, have moved to a place of, well, no, uh, this is something that we've actually just incorporated into our Shabbat practice. And what's the way they get there? Yeah. The way they get there is, well, if you drill down really hard on Shema Yitaken Klishir, that the only concern is lest I come to do something, right, and manipulate something. Um, and either you don't think that tuning a guitar string is really fixing it, it's only if, like, it snaps, right, or you're just confident that you're not going to uh, actually violate that in some way. Well, there is a sort of spin-off of that Tosafot I quoted before that magnifies into a Magen Avraham, who is in 17th century Poland, who says, well, if you really buy their logic, that as long as you're not, you know, expert to do something, in theory, you should permit not only the banging that they were permitting, but the playing of musical instruments, right, entirely. Because once you say, I don't have the expertise to fix it, if that's true, right. you potentially open that it's up. It's a little bit like, you can't have a good guitar player. <laughs> you can only have a bad guitar player. Right. So I think there's a lot of problems with that, both in terms of, I'm not sure you can really address that concern of lest you fix in all cases, but this is where the multiple reasons is sort of helpful for understanding people's resistance. Like, if you asked me, um, you know, hey, you know, should I play musical instruments on Shabbat, right? Like, my answer to someone coming to me for guidance would be sort of A, no. <laughs> um, B, and the reason for that is even though I could imagine you making an argument uh, based on having a lack of skill to fix something, that that concern about playing musical instruments doesn't apply, 
not sure all the other things about noise or about creating a certain environment or the tools element of this can so easily be discarded. And minimally, you should understand how that creates a deep kind of allergy and resistance among many people for what's happening. And I will always remind people that you do also need to know that the Ramban students played harps on Shabbat, um, and they were deeply embedded in the halachic discourse and cared very much about it. And so there can be a way sometimes of having a kind of clear line of what you would not do or how you might set up a prayer space that you were in charge of, and nonetheless have the ability to see other practices as not in complete and total rupture uh, with your way of thinking about something. Yeah, there's a experience that I sort of want to reflect on that I think helps me understand the first frame, especially about the loud noise. Um, and it may also fall into the category of like ensuring that your relationship to your spiritual life and to tefillah is not restricted just to Shabbat, right? If you can have time that is not on Shabbat, um, which is the the phenomenon of a malava malka, it's sort mm-hmm. of like a party that happens after Havdalah, where you continue to celebrate Shabbat, but frequently people will bring instruments out at that point. It's like you make Havdalah, there is a distinction and a difference, and now you start playing the instruments, and you can feel the mood change and the room mm-hmm. change. Um, and I feel like that that helps me appreciate maybe what the quiet pre-Shabbat, you know, the pre-Havdalah part is that if you had instruments throughout Shabbat, you would miss the opportunity to experience that transition Mm -hmm. from a no instrument space into an instrument space. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that requires like, you know, you got to set aside a few more hours after Shabbos to have the Malavamalka. And, but, but there's something sort of magical in that comparison. You know, Joey Weisenberg of Hadar is a master at teaching about the, uh, you know, the the music is sometimes about appreciating the silence before and after it, that that sometimes the quiet in in distinction to the instruments can actually be really powerful. Yeah. You know, just to give another example of this, when you bring up the question of atmosphere, um, I think some of this framework we've talked about today is also helpful for understanding like complexity around the use of a microphone on Shabbat and Yom Tov, right? Like we don't think of a microphone as a musical instrument, Right. But a microphone is an amplifier of sound. It makes things louder. Um, It is a tool, even if sitting there, you're sort of using it passively. Um, And there may be concerns about fixing it, manipulating it. But the point is, you can obviously potentially address all of those. I mean, the microphone became a kind of clear denominational divide around Shabbat practice in America. In the early years of its introduction, that was much less clear. You know, different rabbis sort of saw it in different ways. Um, But I think the underlying issues there, similarly, can't just be boiled down to, oh, you're using electricity or you're not using electricity. There's some, what is this thing doing, right? What is its impact on the environment? How am I involving myself? How is it making the space feel totally different? And I think what we learn from this topic is those are all relevant and important Shabbat questions. I have one last question. I'm not sure this is relevant to the way the questioner asked their question, but I can't help but want to reflect on it a little bit, which is, um, banging on the table, it feels to me like 
maybe a problem with number one on the loud noises, but certainly a problem with number two in terms of the rhythmic yeah. banging. Um, and it is very prevalent in many communities that consider themselves to be halakhically observant. So uh, what's the deal? Yeah, look, even on the Hadar website, I think we have some links to videos that are, you know, actually guiding you, coaching you how you could do like effective tabletop drumming in order to create a certain environment. I think, you know, it's it's not 100% simple to think about how those things should best be integrated. I mean, in general, I don't remember what we have up there, we could check. But in general, I like when, you know, offering people different pathways to kind of give some caution, be like, well, you should know this approach you know, is assuming X, Y, and Z. Look, the basic way you permit the tabletop drumming, right? You, you can't be concerned about the noise angle, right? Like if you're really worried about the loud noise on its own, that's going to be a problem. Right. If you're worried about the rhythmic manipulation of the space, that's a problem. So you're either leaning into model three of, yeah, the concern is like, lest I come to fix something. And, and I don't think that's going to be an issue. Or four, where I'm not using a you know, sound generating tool in order to make this sound. Um, that's how I think of it, right? The ways in which I, yeah, I was raised banging on tables on Shabbat. I'm not going to stop doing that. I don't really feel uh, that nervous about it. I think when I got my deepest insight on this was the moment where I realized um, I had no problem like banging on a table. And yet the notion of picking up even a knife and using it to like clink a glass to make a noise or mm -hmm. get people's attention on Shabbat, I remember having this instinct, like, I don't think you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's the difference there? In one of them, you're using your hand to bang on something. The other, you're picking up a tool and using it, right, to actually create a sound. So I'm not saying whether it's black on white that you can't bang the knife on the glass, but... I think this is one of these areas where there's a really productive interplay between, you know, a deep engagement with the sources and people probing some of their own instincts of what feels right, what feels off on Shabbat, and there may actually be more halachic language for that than you thought. And, and the last one, just because I imagine people will be wondering, is like a drum, right? People who would make a distinction between, I would never play a string instrument, but yeah, I do bring a little hand drum to shul. Um, does that feel... Yeah. Like a meaningful distinction? That I think is riding 100% on Model 3 and ignoring the other ones. There's a notion of, well, if I assume the problem with fixing is a string breaks and I put it back on, and the assumption, again, I don't play drums enough to know whether this is really right, that the drum either A is not going to break, or if it does break, it's just finished and I'm not going to do anything else. Um, yeah, you could make that argument. Um It'll fail all the other three tests, right? And at that point, I think it's worth a question of, you know, is that is that really compelling? I think the other reason the the models are important to me is sometimes people experience uh, halacha as being, well, the rabbis told me it was lest I fix a musical instrument. And then I gave them a scenario where I wasn't going to fix the musical instrument, and they still told me it was forbidden. Yeah. That's so annoying. <laughs> and I'm saying, actually, sometimes what that requires is to probe. Maybe, actually, they threw out one reason 
But there's multiple reasons undergirding this practice. And instead of just feeling the frustration of why am I not allowed to execute the leniency I think should be present to say, maybe there's more of a story here than I thought. And it's a richer tapestry of concern. Yeah, I am left thinking, you know, reflecting on this sort of irony or beauty of the fact, actually, that sometimes the people who aren't using instruments on Shabbat are actually the people who most value instruments, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, who most think that that tool is meaningful or think that the distinction between having an instrument and not is a meaningful distinction. Um, That's a little complicated, right? You would want it to be that the instrument lovers can have their instruments on Shabbos. Like, that's what we want to be able to say. Um, And it's interesting that actually sometimes the more you value having that tool, actually, the more it's a tool. Okay, so maybe we'll just end with this, is, which is uh, this person is not setting up their own community and making a decision right. for their own community. They're just saying, can I attend? Can right. I show up? Can I check it out? Um, what's going on at this new local minion? Um, it, what do you what do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, so I always hesitate without knowing a particular person or community or what's involved, what's at stake to give like, you know, a recommendation on the air. Um, I feel like... These are the two elements, I would say. Um, One, hopefully our brief treatment of this gives a sense of there are multiple reasons here that there has been an aversion to use of musical instruments, and there are some of the pathways that you can see someone at least wanting to, uh, and a number of people historically, in fact, having opened up like possibilities of engagement with musical instruments of certain types in certain contexts, um, such that, okay, you have like a little bit more of complexity around that, even if my answer would still be to you, like I, I would not engage. But then the second piece is what you do with that knowledge, which is, we've talked about this a bunch of times, you know, I have a general bias towards Jews finding a way to be with each other to the extent that they can stretch but not violate their own integrity in terms of the things they're standing for. Um, And so to the extent that, yeah, it feels like it's important or really valuable for you to be in a certain prayer space that is not conforming with all of your parameters that you would set up, and you can identify like the halachic voices strands that even if they feel stretched to you, you can see how there could be a story told here. I think sometimes it's it's really important then to to be in places, you know, stretching in that way in order to kind of broaden the narrative. But those are delicate judgment calls depending on the parameters of the specific scenario. Yeah, I've really enjoyed getting to dig into this question. And I think one of the reasons why is because it sounds like a yes or no question. Are instruments permitted on Shabbat? Um, And you've given us such a rich matrix and framework of where to think about, well, there's four different places, and where am I in each place, and how do they intersect with each other? Um, And even, you know, you've told us you yourself don't fall completely in a no, right? It's like, oh, well, maybe the table banging is okay. I don't know how you feel about door knockers, but but I added myself, I suppose, as not particularly concerned about that. Mm -hmm. Um, That that is such a great example, you know, sort of for what we're trying to do on this show, but what we're trying to do in general in living halachic lives of saying 
There's so much here. Um, and actually, we're all going to engage differently. We actually need all the frameworks in order to figure out where we are and what practice we want to have and how we want to live. Um, so with that said, I want to just sort of point to the fact that you have a, an essay that really unpacks this question in a much deeper way um, that people could find on the Hadar website. Um, and that I'm thinking in particular of a, of a time when a colleague of mine who was a Hebrew college student with me reached out to me to say like, hey, could we study this essay together? Um, because she was a person working in a pulpit at the time that was using instruments. And she said, oh, I, I want thicker understanding and language around what I'm okay with and what I'm not okay with and how we're making these decisions, um, that sometimes it's it's in particular the people who want to find ways to incorporate instruments who are most in need of these sources. Um, so if you are one of those people who is uh, asking questions like that, to know that that resource is there for you. Would love for people to engage with that and all those questions to always be explored as much as they can. Thank you so much. Thank you. Acapella, acapella, that's how we're singing this song. And you tell her, it's acapella, cause the instruments don't play along. We just use our voices to make the noises trickle into your ear. Acapella is a Beautiful sound to hear. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at responsaradio at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chabinsky for recording and editing this episode. Just use your voices to make the noises that trickle into your ear acapella is a beautiful sound to hear